If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. Luke 21, reading verses 12 down through verse 19. Luke 21, beginning with verse 12, says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Father, we pray now as we seek to understand and apply what it is that the Spirit of God has for us in your word, that you would instruct us and guide us, uh, guide our thinking in the way that we uh, consider this very sobering subject of persecution. And I pray that each one of us would be strengthened in our faith and our res uh, resolve and in our devotion to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we are back in Luke chapter 21, looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning, and we're going to be walking through uh, instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples as they were about to face persecution. Uh, how do we respond when the world around us hates us and when they oppose us because of our faith in Christ? These are questions that uh, most of us in 21st century America really don't think about uh, because we don't have to. We aren't afraid this morning of being arrested or being burned at the stake uh, because we're gathering as a church. Our government, at least for now, uh, allows us the freedom to worship God. This has not always been the case, of course, throughout human history, and we have no reason to believe it always will be the case. Uh, throughout the history of the church, God has used persecution and the Christian's response to it as a means of advancing his kingdom on earth. Uh, but I'm getting way ahead of myself, so let's back up. Uh, when we talk about persecution, it's important to define our terms. What are we talking about here? And so right at the outset, I want to give us uh, kind of a distinction between what I'm going to call persecution and opposition. Okay, so persecution, when you hear that word, you probably think of uh, some sort of physical uh, persecution, like be, you know your pastor is arrested uh, because the government found out about your underground church, or this is when, when you go to jail because you, you were found giving out Bibles. Uh, this is what being a Christ, this is when uh, being a Christian may cost you your life. That would be what we think of normally in terms of persecution. And all of that is, again, outside of our normal experience uh, here in America. It certainly happens all over the world, uh, even today, but it's not really a reality for most of us. This kind of persecution is, however, what Jesus is warning the disciples about. As we'll see when we get into the text, uh, Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms that some of them will be arrested and even killed uh, for being a follower of Jesus. So that's persecution. Uh, another sort of, you could call persecution, not so much physical danger, but what I would call opposition. Uh, this is when being a Christian may cost you your job, uh, being ridiculed and ostracized from society for believing the Bible. This is the sort of thing that is becoming more and more of a reality right here at home in the U.S. And often this is followed by persecution. Uh, we can see both of these realities in the text in Luke 21. If you glance down to verse 17, you'll see that Jesus mentions being hated for his, uh, for his namesake. Uh, that's opposition. That's when the world uh, ridicules and slanders you because of your faith. And verse 16 would be an example of persecution in the sense of being arrested or even put to death as a martyr. 
And so Jesus is giving instructions to his followers of how we are to handle both, uh, both kinds of opposition from the world. Uh, how are we to live as Christians in the midst of a hostile environment? That's what we'll be thinking about today. Uh, let's look at what Jesus says here, beginning in verse 12. And remember the context from last week. Jesus is in the temple uh, with his disciples. He's right in the middle of telling them about God's judgment that was coming to the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. And in verse 12, he says, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So the first instruction we could say that Jesus gives his disciples is they ought to expect opposition. Uh, notice his words there. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. You will be delivered up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And by the way, please notice that uh, Jesus is talking here specifically about being persecuted for his name's sake. Okay, some Christians act like jerks and then they think they're being persecuted because they receive criticism. Uh, that's not persecution. That's uh, not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, as you follow my teachings and as you preach my gospel, uh, some people will oppose you for doing that. We should be persecuted for our convictions, for standing up for the truth, uh, not for our bad attitudes or rudeness. But in the path of following Christ, Jesus says there will be opposition from the world. So expect it. Uh, this isn't just a remote possibility. It's going to happen. And so he says, don't be caught off uh, guard by this. Expect the opposition. Jesus had told them in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, Jesus is telling them, don't be surprised when people around you hate you because of what you believe. Remember, they hated me first. Okay, the founder of our faith was literally tortured and killed. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised if those of us who follow his teachings and confront the world the same way he did receive some of the same opposition. Peter wrote to Christians who were experiencing this type of opposition in his first epistle, chapter 4, he says to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing, uh, something strange were happening to you. Uh, now, what do we do? When fiery trials come upon us, and if you read the rest of the context there, you'll see Peter's talking about uh, persecution from the world for being a follower of Christ. We'll get to those verses a little bit later. But most of us, when we experience this, when we, when we uh, receive some sort of opposition or persecution, we're surprised. Uh, we panic. When we see in the news that some bill in Congress is trying to restrict religious freedom, we freak out about that sort of thing. Uh, when we see pastors in Canada being arrested last year uh, for having church, we freak out about it. That's our natural reaction, as though this is something unusual. But Peter says, don't think like that. Uh, expect it. The world hated Jesus. They're going to hate you. And so Jesus told us, in fact, why the world hated him. Uh, in John chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. When the truth of God's word collides with the lies of the culture around us, it exposes them. 
When the exclusive claims of Christianity collide with a culture of tolerance and acceptance of everything, Christianity becomes the only unacceptable view. When our gospel message that all are sinners in need of salvation collides with the pride and self-righteousness of fallen humanity, it's going to cause offense. And so we can't be caught off guard by opposition and persecution. There are spiritual forces opposing us. We're in the midst of a battle between light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the realm of Satan, the kingdom of Christ and the world. And so expect opposition. And I think you and I are especially needing to hear this because, again, we've had the unusual blessing of, uh, of living in a country that for the past few centuries has protected religious freedom, uh, has very strong Christian roots. Being a Christian in America has been for centuries a culturally acceptable thing. But now that's starting to shift. And by the way, none of our views have changed, right? We're still standing in the same place we were 2,000 years ago. Uh, we still are teaching and believing the same things. But the culture around us is shifting and it's leaving us behind. And so now we're seen as being insensitive, hateful bigots. And this is just the beginning of the type of persecution that we're going to face. Right now, we're just getting into the ridicule and public shaming part where it's no longer acceptable uh, to be a Bible-believing Christian. The real suffering and physical persecution hasn't hit us just yet, but we need to be ready for it. We need to expect the opposition. Uh, the further that our culture moves away from traditional Christian ethics, the more those of us who are still standing here will face some sort of opposition. And so first, there's the opposition we ought to expect. Jesus tells them, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be persecuted if you are preaching the gospel. Some of you may even be killed. And so he says, you're going to be brought on trial before Jewish synagogues, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be forced to stand trial before kings and governors. And by the way, uh, all of that takes place in the book of Acts. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all uh, biographies of Jesus. Uh, they tell about the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, of course, we've been studying Luke the last couple of years. It's just one of four biographies, if you will, uh, four accounts of Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, finally his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so, spoiler alert, uh, that's where we're headed in the next few chapters. Jesus is going to die and uh, be raised again. Uh, but the book of Acts is the rest of the story. It tells about what happens after Jesus leaves. Uh, it tells us the history of the early church, those first few followers of, Christi of Jesus who spread the gospel after he had left. And throughout the book of Acts, you will see persecution, just like Jesus predicted was going to happen. For example, in Acts chapter 12, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, when they had seized him and put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Uh, this sort of persecution is very common throughout the book of Acts, where kings and rulers will oppress the church. Uh, we're not going to take the time to look through all the passages that we could. There's so many uh, that we could see in the book of Acts. But you may remember some of the more famous ones, like Stephen. Uh, being brought before the Jewish leaders, he's condemned to death by stoning simply for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, was put on trial many times in front of uh, King Agrippa, governors like Felix and Festus. And uh, of course, ultimately, he was imprisoned and killed in Rome. And so this sort of opposition was very common throughout those early years of the church. 
And Jesus predicted all of it. He warned them ahead of time. If you're going to follow me faithfully, uh, you're going to receive opposition. Uh, next, we see the opportunity we ought to seize. Verse 13, after telling them you're going to be opposed uh, by the world, you're going to be put on trial, some of you will be killed. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. So he tells them of the opposition they ought to expect, and immediately after warning them of this, he tells them, this is an opportunity that they ought to seize. Uh, when you're arrested for preaching the gospel, when kings and rulers are threatening your life, this is actually an opportunity to bear witness. I know it looks like we're losing, but this is actually how we win. Uh, when we face opposition for Jesus' sake, we ought to see this as an opportunity to bear witness to Christ by our response. And rather than trying to just come up with some ways in which we do this, let's look at a real example in Acts 16. Uh, Paul had just cast a demon out of a girl, uh, and she was basically making money for some of her, her owners uh, by her demon possession. Paul cast the demon out of her. Verse 19, it says, When her owners saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us at, as Romans to accept or practice. Uh, the crowds joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And so when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stalks. And so here is Paul and Silas having done nothing wrong. In fact, they did something very right. Uh, they freed a girl who was demon-possessed. And now they find themselves in prison after having been beaten for this action. Now, put yourself in their sandals for a minute, or maybe in their stocks in this case. Uh, what would you be doing? You're sitting in prison. You've just been beaten. Uh, I think the last thing, at the at, at very least, I would probably be complaining. Okay, maybe crying, maybe angry at God for allowing this to happen. But I can tell you one thing my first instinct wouldn't be is to sing. But look at the next verse. It says, as they're in prison... Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We're not going to take time to read the rest of the story, but uh, in the end, the jailer ends up being saved and baptized that very night, along with his whole family. And so you see, the kingdom of God doesn't spread by coercion, but by convincing people to believe the truth of the gospel. And what better testimony is there than Paul and Silas sitting in prison in Philippi? because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus, and there they are singing praise to God. What better witness to Christ could there be than Stephen, while he's being stoned to death for his faith in Jesus, there he is praying that God would forgive those who are killing him. The more persecution the church has faced, the greater the spread of the kingdom. Uh, Acts chapter 8 says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this is uh, persecution from the government against the church, and it's causing Christians to flee for their lives. They're, they're scattered throughout the area. And it says, devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Again, put yourself in this situation. Imagine the government is so opposed to us as Christians that they're going house to house and arresting people, uh, putting them in prison if you're a Christian. And notice what verse 4 says. Now those who were scattered, those who are, are fleeing for their lives, 
went about preaching the word. And you see throughout the rest of this chapter how God used this very opposition to spread the gospel further. Persecution hits the church and Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire. And everywhere they go, they're preaching the gospel. They're starting little churches over and over throughout the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church since then. We have the testimony of Christians who stood firm in the midst of persecution. And that testimony shakes the watching world. In 1536, William Tyndale was the first to translate the Greek New Testament into English. He was killed by Henry VIII for doing this. And just before his execution, he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. In fact, this sort of thing is quite common throughout the history of Christianity. If you want a good little book on this, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It documents one account after another of Christians who were killed for their faith in Jesus and who used their persecution as an opportunity to give testimony to Christ. Uh, Christians being burned at the stake would often preach to the crowds gathered around who were watching, literally testifying with their dying breath of their faith in Jesus. And with each death, others would be converted to Christ while watching this. Now, this became so common, in fact, that the executioners would start strangling them while they were burning them at the stake just to shut them up so they wouldn't preach. And so the point is, although persecution is certainly not something we invite or something that we want to happen, it is nevertheless something that God uses to advance the spread of the kingdom on earth. As many who have studied church history have said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be arrested You'll have to stand trial. Some of you will be imprisoned and even killed for the sake of the gospel. But this is all an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. Verse, 17, uh, verse 14 says, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. So don't, don't try to come up with a clever defense. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And again, we could trace throughout the book of Acts where Christians are arrested and they have to stand trial before uh, magistrates. And the Holy Spirit fills them in that moment and gives them the words to say. Just one example of this. Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John had just healed a crippled man and the religious leaders arrested them for doing this, uh, for preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead. <clears throat> Verse 7 says, When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And so here it is, Peter is being put on trial, just like Jesus said was going to happen. Verse 8 records his response. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, this is a great example of God giving Peter the words and the wisdom that he needed in the moment and he, and he said things that none of his enemies could refute, just like Jesus said. Uh, back to uh, Luke 21, verse 16, he continues, says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So you'll be hated, you'll be arrested. Some of you will be even killed for your faith in Jesus. 
He says, all of this is an opportunity that we ought to seize. How will you respond when you're hated for the sake of Jesus? He's already told us how we're supposed to respond back in Luke chapter 6. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How do we respond when the world hates us and opposes us? We love them. We do good to them. That's an opportunity to really make an impression of the love of Christ in our hearts. When we're arrested, how will we respond? Will we recant of our faith in Jesus or will we stand firm? If we stand rock solid in our convictions, even in the face of persecution and death, that devotion will be a testimony to those who see it of the truth of the gospel. And so there's the opposition we ought to expect, the opportunity we ought to seize. Next, notice the outlook we ought to have about all of this. Verse 18, this one really sounds strange when you first read it, uh, because Jesus had just finished telling them, uh, some of you will be arrested and even killed uh, for my namesake. And then verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Uh, you'll be arrested, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. Uh, now, how can both of those statements be true? Uh, you might be killed, but you'll be fine. Uh, I, I think verse 19 hints at the explanation. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By enduring these persecutions and holding on to your commitment to Christ, in the end, you will gain something far more than what you lose. You might lose your physical, earthly life, but guess what? So does everybody else. All of us die. But for the Christian, our death here is our entrance into eternity with Christ, which is far better. And so, yes, you may lose your life in service to Christ, but you'll not lose your soul. They can't take your life ultimately. Because the moment they try to, you'll be more alive than you ever were here on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I'm not going to take time to go to all these texts, but Paul tells us to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says uh, that he desired to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He considered that far better. This is the attitude that Jesus is calling his followers to. You're going to be opposed by the world. You're going to be persecuted, but stay faithful. Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit <clears throat> on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive an hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so this is the outlook that we ought to have as we experience opposition and even persecution for Christ. If we lose our life, we find it. Whatever sacrifices we make here will be rewarded eternally. We may die, but in dying for Christ, our reward in eternity will be far better than whatever we gave up here. Therefore, because of all of this, we rejoice in persecution. And if that sounds extreme, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Be glad. 
rejoice in the midst of opposition and persecution. This is the outlook that we ought to have. Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. A leap for joy when people are hating you, when they're reviling you. If people call you names, if they falsely accuse you, they call you a hateful bigot because you believe the Bible. Jesus says when that happens, love them, do good to them, and rejoice. Do a little jig. <laughs> Leap for joy as you think about the reward that awaits you. That's a radical way to think about persecution. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The outlook that we ought to have about opposition and persecution that we may experience is this. First of all, we glory in these things because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. When the world is against us, God goes before us. Second, we rejoice in persecution and opposition because this is all a part of God's plan to advance his kingdom. The kingdom spreads not through times of ease and comfort primarily, but through times of opposition. That's a tool that God uses to further the gospel. Third reason to rejoice in persecution and opposition is because of the reward that we will have eternally. And finally, one more reason the Bible gives us to rejoice when we are opposed and persecuted is our personal growth. James chapter 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So James is writing to Jews who had converted to Christianity, and they're now being dispersed because of the persecution we just read about in Acts 4. Uh, the church is being opposed and persecuted by the government, the Roman government at the time. And these Christians are basically fleeing for their lives because of this. And look at the first words that he says to them. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says we ought to rejoice in opposition and persecution because by enduring these things for the sake of Christ, we grow. I want to be a better Christian. I want to show my love to Christ. I want to glorify God. I want to advance his kingdom on earth. All of that is accomplished when we faithfully serve our Lord in the midst of opposition. One more text, back to 1 Peter 4. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange, something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, <clears throat> Peter says, I'm not talking about suffering that you bring on yourself. <laughs> okay, This is specifically suffering uh, in the path of obedience to Christ. Verse 16, 
If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so we are to expect the opposition. It's coming. Uh, prepare yourself to be steadfast when it's not so easy, when it's not so popular to stand for Christ. And when that opposition begins to come, we ought to see that as an opportunity to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And all the while, we maintain the right outlook. God uses our suffering to advance his kingdom and to mature us into Christ-likeness. And in the end, whatever loss we may suffer here will be eternally repaid.